everyone, and welcome to the Metacast by Novik, a podcast in which we explore the business and future of video games. I'm Aaron Bush, and in this episode, I'm thrilled to host a conversation with Emily Greer. Emily is an industry legend who I've learned a lot from at a distance, and I'm really excited to have a more personal conversation today. Emily, welcome to the Metacast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk. Sweet. And many people may know of you as a co-founder and COO and then CEO at Congregate, but your your story is also bigger than that. So to set the stage for everything that we'll dig into today, how would you describe your games industry journey so far? Uh, yeah, it's uh, I definitely have, I think, a, a one-of-one path uh, through the games industry, starting with I have only ever been a founder in the games industry uh, and, uh, you know, came in with, with no real games background. So the sort of origin story is that... Um, uh, my mother and I grew up uh, playing PC games together. Our mom was really into uh, computers and always had the like newest computer. So, you know, in the like 1980, we were like the one house on the block that had uh, an Apple and we would, um, you know, play all sorts of games on it. Um, my brother really loved the, the, the Ultima series. I was a big fan of Load Runner, the old Broderbund game. And, you know, that's, you know, how we grew up. And then uh, we spent, split off and went to college. And Jim ended up uh, dropping out of college to uh, work on the Ultima series when he got the chance um, and got into the games industry as a, an engineer. And now that I had my main person that I played games with was no longer with me, I kind of stopped playing games. Um, it exaggerated because that was also when games started going really 3D. And I have a inner ear problem that makes me really unusually sensitive to camera motion. I have problems in, in movies even, like if they're like fast cut or short held and like seeing Doom being placed, played across the, the, the computer lab was enough to make me sick. So I sort of like went away from games for a little while, but like it was always in there uh, um, in me. And I sort of became this kind of classic casual gamer who played a lot of Bejeweled on her flip phone and, you know, Pop It on Pogo and various other things. Um, and became, yeah, like this 2D solo gamer who didn't talk about it with her friends. Um, I didn't even talk about it with my brother because he was in, you know, uh, in kind of core game making land. Um, um, I finished college and sort of stumbled into, uh, catalog and e-commerce direct marketing, um, and fell in love with sort of data and using data to understand, you know, how the world is working, how business is working, how decisions are made. Um, so, uh, I did, um, spent about 10 years in the catalog e-commerce industry doing what we would now call, you know, data science and UA, um, but was not called that <laughs> then. Right. And it's actually been kind of amazing um, because I thought when my brother had the idea for Congregate, I had I started helping him with his business plan and because uh, I knew much more about business than he did, and then volunteered as co-founder, I thought I was going to be doing something completely different. And for about nine months, I was. <laughs> and then, you know, our Congregate launched and, you know, every year, everything that I learned in that 
sort of prior to games experience has become kind of more and more more relevant. So it's a, a sort of a strange story of I wasn't in great apprenticeship for the games industry, only neither I nor the games industry knew it at the time. Love it. And I was a uh, I was probably a, a day one or about as close as a day one user of, of Congregate as you could get. Um, I know I was in school at the time and we we definitely played the game. There was like several years of which it was like a cat and mouse game between, you know, the administrators and the students to try to make us yep. not play congregate games, but we would always still find a way. So, um, so I actually memory. think that the fact that, you know, almost all the other flash game sites had games somewhere in their name. And I think that congregate had an early advantage in the, the school market because it was like, if you're, if you're scanning a list of URLs, it wasn't obviously a game site. So I think we, we were, were kind of, kept up in more places a little bit longer because we weren't called addicting games or, you know, some such thing. Absolutely. So um, let's talk a bit more about what you're building today. And then I want to spend some time also looking back on all that you've learned and how you've evolved as a serial entrepreneur and CEO. Um, and, and, you know, somewhat selfishly in that too, as someone who's uh, new to the games industry, doesn't have that that games background similar to you when you started. Um, but maybe to start, I just want to ask, why go back to square one and start another games company? Like what, what motivated you to do that? Uh, there is a real truth that sort of entre for the kind of person who becomes an entrepreneur, it is a little bit of, a, of an addiction because, uh, you know, there... There's something about starting a company and having that small team and that, you know, big space of possibility and the excitement of that that is um, uh, that is really just really meaningful in a, in a way that sort of working within a larger corporation, you have less agency and less, you know, kind of ability to, to shape things. Um, the other thing for me is, so, you know, I came into the games industry co-founding Congregate, which was a platform. So we built that. And then um, when I took over as CEO, we became, went into mobile as a, a, a third party and then um, first party publisher. So I'd done that but I hadn't actually made games. And so I'd been in the industry a really long time and was kind of gradually, you know, coming in like 30,000 feet, 10,000 feet, 5,000 feet. But like, you know, games are fun. I wanted to, to actually make them and, and have that experience. And I thought that there was an opportunity um, as somebody who, you know, most people who get into the games industry, it's a it's sort of a passion industry and most have kind of the core gamer identity. I'm a little unusual in that I'm an industry veteran who has a classic, you know, so-called casual gamer identity. And I thought that, you know, there's an opportunity Every, you know, the best games are the games that you make for yourself, right? Um, and I felt like there was an opportunity to, you know, build games kind of from the ground up with that perspective on this market and, you know, um, in what is frankly, you know, about the big, biggest part of the industry. I mean, sort of mobile overall is now the majority. And uh, just even though it is now a mature market, really feeling the, 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 the opportunity there. But 
you know, so that was a big part of it. But also I, I, I kind of, you know, running a larger company, I missed that stage when we were, you know, 10 people building one thing um, and uh, um, kind of wanted another crack at it. Awesome. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. Your current company is Double Loop Games, which, as it <laughs> says on your LinkedIn, is a new mobile studio dedicated to making delightful, relaxing experiences for the biggest audience in games, people who don't think of themselves as gamers. So I know you can't go too deep on the details of your game yet, but Emily, can you unpack this thesis for us some yes. more and maybe just tell us at a high level what, what yeah, you're doing? Yeah, so... It's a it's a complicated way of saying things, and I think actually, it's uh, it's something that people often misunderstand as getting people to play games who don't usually play games, and that's not what we're sort of focused on at all. What it really comes down to is I really hate the word um, casual. Um, and the distinction of core casual that we've built up in the industry, among other things, as soon as you call one thing core, you're describing everything else is sort of peripheral and lesser. Um, and that's something that's really bothered me for a long time. I also think that, you know, casual, there are casual players of games, um, but I think they exist across the spectrum and play a lot of different things. I think there are casual players of like people who pick, pick up FIFA with their friends, you know, once every two months or Madden or Call of right. Duty. That's one kind of casual player. Um, somebody who just wants to wants to play, you know, the equivalent, the hyper casual games, which are the equivalent of, um, you know, flash games, what flash games were in their day, you know, a very simple thing. That is a true casual player. But when you look at the sort of the big meat of what of the so-called casual market, you're looking at people who are mostly playing, you know, uh, six and seven days a week, playing, you know, 45 minutes to an hour a day um, and really invested and really treating games as their hobby. And I that audience to me is not is really um, misnomered when you call it casual. So that's what my se sentence there is trying to unpack is actually what we want to do is make um, really deep games um, for this audience, games that are accessible, but games that also sort of unfold and are things that you can play not just for you know, a few hours or a few weeks, but for years and have them be really meaningful. So, um, you know, we sometimes joke um, that w our real goal is to make MMOs for moms. Um, and that's a reduction, but I actually think it kind of gives you a little bit of a feel of what our, our dream is. Will we achieve it? I don't know. MMOs are hard and, you know, onboarding people into into things um, uh, is difficult. But I think part of this is driven by my journey as of having been, you know, become a truly, you know, the, that classic casual gamer and then, you know, getting into CCG guilds um, because I was part of Congregate and really loving it and feeling like, OK, this is an experience that I think can be meaningful to a lot of people. And I want to kind of work on bridging that gap and, um, and, and, and helping build those games. 
Sweet. Well, that sounds really exciting. Um, I'm excited to to learn more about what you're building when when you're ready to share. But uh, maybe just to to talk about the company side a little bit more. What is the the state of Double Loop these games? How big is the team at this point? Um, what have you raised? Any other interesting details there? Yeah, so um, we are uh, 18 full-time employees um, uh, across U.S. and Canada, mostly on the West Coast, um, and then plus some additional full-time contractors. So probably working full-time on the game somewhere in the kind of 20, 22 um, um, uh, people range. So, you know, small enough that you can, everybody knows everybody and you can, talk to the whole team easily, uh, but also, you know, big enough that you can actually, you know, get a substantial amount done, um, um, hopefully, knock on wood. Uh, and um, we've raised uh, 10.5 million, um, but in two rounds, we did a seed round um, that was uh, led by LVP with um, uh, one-up um, ventures also participating, plus some um, industry angels. And then we did an A round led by Hero Capital with um, uh, various people uh, also par participating, LVP again, um, uh, Garena, uh, Riot, um, and again, some, you know, uh, uh, individuals and, and family offices as well. Sweet. Um, and I know you also raised money for Congregate back in, you know, 2006, 2010, I believe that that time period. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd love to, to hear your view on as a founder, how has the funding environment in the games industry changed since then? Um, and, and then maybe as a follow up. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, you know, why why these investors for, for yeah. you? Yeah. So, I mean, it is a just an absolutely massive change. And that is actually a part of what contributed to me um, uh, being willing to and and feeling up for starting uh, Double Loop was that I felt like the that the venture industry was finally really starting to understand games and that um, uh much better funding opportunities existed um, than um, had previously. So, you know, in 2006, uh, you know, games really were not funded by venture capital at all. We kind of snuck in because we were a platform um, um, with around games. And so investors really liked it that they could kind of get near games, which they could tell what, you know, was a big and growing industry. Um, but they had sort of firmly fixed in their heads that, you know, games were hit driven, um, you know, not a sustain sustainable business that they weren't, you know, good judgments of it, and they should just leave it to the publishers. Um, so when we were raising, um, we focused entirely on the fact that we were a platform, we were um, um, competing for that. And really, we didn't speak to anybody who knew games very well at all. I think the one exception was Benchmark had um, Mitch Lasky uh, just joining in that period, um, um, who had you know a great uh, background as an Activision exec and and uh, um, you know running Jamdat. But that was like the one person in Silicon Valley who really knew games, um, and they didn't even mostly they didn't even play games very much. So. Um, we were, you know, we were sort of kind of um, um, 
really focused on, you know, platform, platform, platform. You know, there was a brief rise where, you know, uh, when Facebook games took off and that was, you know, Facebook was a platform that they they were invested in. And then there was a brief flurry of, okay, we're going to um, invest a lot of money. But of course, you know, we know what happened with Facebook games. So for mostly that turned out not to be great investments and just reinforce that thesis that, oh, games are hit driven when really what it was is that, you know, you know, iPhone mobile came around, you know, right at this moment of great discovery and all of the audience shifted. But what had been built in terms of kind of the games in the industry was really was was really lasting. So um, it went back to being kind of a winner of games. Um, you know, we um what I, you know, then I think, you know, kind of post social, uh, you know, social mobile burst, um, kind of 2012 through 2016, it was really kind of a wasteland. There was, you know, the main VCs really weren't touching games at all. There was um, LVP in London who are ex-games folks who sort, you know, who'd been investors in Supercell and Unity and, and made a lot of good, uh, you know, the sort of the best bets in that that period. And so they kind of, you know, were able to weather it and keep building. And then, you know, games went through this great transformation on two kind of a free to play and, um, you know, games as a service model or even, you know, console games are really services now. And then VC started to be like, oh, okay, the, you know, this is, yes, it's hit driven, but it's hit driven in the same way that all venture investments is hit driven. And once you have a hit, you can sustain it for a very long time and have better multiples, et cetera. So it just really set the stage for a kind of a new flowering and a big, you know, round of investment. So now there are, I mean, I think when we raised our A, I ended up talking to 70 different investors um, who are people who invest in games. Um, and that, you know, I think we talked to, you know, less than 20 when we were uh, when we were raising for Congregate and, you know, no real games people. And now um, there uh, there's just a, a host of, uh, of dedicated investment. And um, on top of that, I think the another thing that's been was sort of pioneered by Y Combinator in a way was kind of the building of community um, amongst startups and have them help each other is a big difference. I don't remember ever meeting another, uh, you know, Greylock portfolio company in that 2006, 2010 period. Whatever sort of startup community we built was just, you know, individually knowing people in the Bay Area. And, and getting together. Whereas now, um, you know, OneUp is one of our investors and they're really focused on doing these smaller broad bets and, and creating, you know, groups of, you know, 50 investees at a time and bringing us together regularly on calls, build, you know, uh, in-person summit, building that community and having us help each other. Um, LVP does a summit. I've just in the last six weeks, I've been to two different investor summits <laughs> and, um, you know, that, uh, it's an amazing difference versus um, our first experience of just being able to, you know, quickly message another founder and say, how are you handling this? Have you used this service? What are you, how, what are you doing about this? And it's, um, 
a much sort of richer and uh, less lonely experience um, to found a games company now um, than it was before. And that's something that I personally really appreciated um, um, compared to, 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 to our first go around. I really would like to spend some time looking back and discussing what you've learned and how you've improved as an entrepreneur um, you know, since 2006, when you co-founded Congregate and, and maybe to, to kick this off, when you, when you look back at your time at Congregate, um, I'd, I'd just like to know, what are you most proud of, of what you and the team accomplished there? Um, and then also maybe a reflection on the flip side of that is, is there anything you wish you knew that would help you, that would have helped you do something better? And then we can dive into to more specifics. Yeah, I think with Congregate, you know, we were part of this great, you know, flash games boom that um, really enabled people, you know, all over the world, very far from the traditional game development centers to make games and and, and build them and, and become professionals and, and get into the industry. Um, and that has changed a lot of lives and helped build game industries kind of all over the world in places that it didn't didn't have before and while we were only like i think you know one part of what happened there i think the biggest role that we had in congregate is that um we came in and said uh hey uh, you should be paid um, for your games and get revenue on the views. Um, prior to, to Congregate, um, you know, all of the flash sites were just kind of, you know, grabbing Swift files and putting them up. And, you know, once your game was out there, you lost all visibility into what was happening. You had no revenue. The only thing that you could weigh a flash developer in the early days could make money was by selling, you know, uh, sponsorship rights um, um, at the beginning and there was no, you know, market for it. So, you know, people were making these games that had billions of views and getting, you know, a hundred bucks from, you know, a portal was all they ever saw of that. Um, so when we came in and then a, a sort of right around the same time, a, a company called Mochi came in and said, okay, you know, <laughs> you, if we're making ad revenue, you should make ad revenue, you know, upload, have control of it, um, keep track of it. And, you know, so many, there are a lot of, you know, really amazing careers that sort of flowered out of that. Um, yeah. um, you know, the, there's a, a, a great studio in, in Indonesia that made the Infectinator games and are now, you know, uh, they are released a game Coffee Talk on Steam this year. You know, they're in their, you know, 10th year. Um, the Ironhide games um, um, who made Kingdom Rush in Uruguay and like there's a whole little, you know, game industry in Uruguay now and Indonesia and places that weren't there. So that's something, you know, all the careers that started and that we were a, a little part of is what um, I'm most proud of. Um, I run into people all the time in the games industry who tell me, oh, the first thing I did was make flash games and put it on Congregate. And that just like warms my heart every time. Awesome. What about the, the flip side? Something that you um, wish that you knew that you didn't, at least early on. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in terms of just, you know, running a company and, and, and maturity of, of it. Um, uh, I think, you know, w 
really, we were really sort of random and not thoughtful enough in terms of like salaries and equity and like what's fair and what's between people. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, I feel like we made a lot of mistakes in terms of like, comp- you know, compensation and team building early in Congregate that we were sort of living with and, and digging ourselves out of, you know, you know, three years later, five years later, 10 years later, because, you know, once we got bought by GameStop, things got really, um, really locked in. So that's one part of it. I think the other part is, you know, when we started, um, it was, you know, we were, you know, me and like, a bunch of young engineers, and we had um, uh, a really sort of fun, but like, kind of hard drinking, um, kind of wilder culture. And I, there were things that, you know, that were going, things that were happening that I wasn't fully comfortable with, but I didn't want to not be one of the guys, right? Um, And I, you know, that feeling of, I needed, I didn't want to be like the buzzkill. Um, and so there were sort of, you know, it moderated over time, but there are definitely sort of early parts of, um, of congregate, um, culture that I really wouldn't want to recreate because I, you know, it was kind of very much part of that sort of like bro, uh, you know, drink until, till three, um, you know, uh, people go onto a strip club kind of thing that, you know, wasn't sort of welcoming to people, um, who didn't drink or, and was, you know, personally uncomfortable sometimes for me as a, as, as a woman in, in the group, but, you know, you feel like you should go along. Um, and so I did. Right. Well, that's a that's a good setup to to dig into to more details of how you're approaching double loop games and how how you've changed as an entrepreneur and how your your thinking has changed around the very early days of starting. How you're thinking about scaling culture, all of that. So um, let's go ahead and, and roll through some of that. Maybe to start with the the founding piece, which mm-hmm. um, when you founded Double Loop Games. Um, how did you start it, you know, similarly mm-hmm. or differently to congregate? You mentioned the culture piece, but are there any other lessons that you carried over that made the process of getting off the ground easier mm-hmm. and more successful? Yeah, I mean, I think in a, a lot of ways, there was a lot of similarities in terms of how congregate started and how double loop started only, you know, last time it was my brother having the idea and this time it was me, but it's the like, idea that sort of takes you over and like you can't stop thinking about it and like you write up your 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 the one sheet of like what you want to do like how you want to think about it what the opportunity is um and yeah the i i had the idea and and but then waited for a li- like just a little while to see okay can i can i can i stop thinking about it no no okay then you know cool, I can go, I can go ahead and, you know, leave congregate and uh, overturn my life for this. Um, I think, um, and then, you know, I really wanted, um, a co-founder having, you know, co-founded with my brother before, um, 
I really missed him when he left um, and kind of like the the worst year for me in Congregate was the year after he left before I hired kind of a, um, a great CEO, Pani Haratados, who became essentially my second co-founder. So, um, you know, I really, really wanted, um, um, you know, a, a, a great partner and somebody who complimented me in terms of what I both in terms of approach and in terms of knowledge. So, um, I, you know, I talked to a bunch of a bunch of people that I knew and ended up um, convincing um, my co-founder Shelby to join. She's the you know, she's you know, I've got the, you know, startup and publishing and marketing and uh, business background. And then she has the, you know, designer production, like from the ground game development. Um, and, you know, we spent a lot of talking and figuring out, OK, um, making sure that we were on the same page in terms of the vision for the company, coming up with game ideas. How do we, you know, mediate conflict, things like that. So um, a lot of that process was based on, okay, having had the experience of co-founding um, and, um, uh, you know, wanting to, 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 to try and, and get that right. Um, there's a lot that was a lot easier because of having built a company before and actually knowing um, uh, what happens when you get investment and also when you get acquired and things like, like things that seem stupid, like, but literally having a very organized folder that has every contract I've ever signed in it, um, which is definitely that kind of like organization and sort of thoughtfulness is something that I spent so much time like trying to chase down, you know, miscellaneous contracts in and, and congregate later. It doesn't sound exciting, but honestly, it is something that um, ended up you know mattering. So there's a lot Sounds of scary. details. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of details around um, you know company foundation, sort of organization, um, making sure like um, you know tax and legal and and, and payroll is set up right knowing a lot about kind of accounting and making sure that that's done right from the beginning so that you don't have to, to fix it later. So a lot of it is about this kind of boring administrative stuff um, that does make your life a lot easier uh, later. Um, I think the other thing, some that I knew was um, and, and learned is just like how important that initial culture is and having, um, that the first, you know, five people in a company really determine so much about how things are going to go and that every habit that you build in the first three months, six months, year are things that are going to set the foundation for, 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 for everybody else. And so I think there's various things where we were thoughtful and talked about, okay, what are the long-term consequences of something, you know, and that includes like, how do we do salaries? How do we do this? How do we do that? Um, that, you know, how do we do, you know, deploys that all come from the experience of having, you know, uh, dealt with the um, problems caused by hasty decisions um, and things like, you know, we had a, a HR contractor, um, you know, at when we were, you know, eight, nine people who's not full time, but is somebody who can help us out and just make sure that we're doing things right from from the beginning. And I think that's um, something that's quite different. 
Awesome. The, yeah, those are that's really great advice. Um, some of that I'll probably even take for myself, like the the folder of contracts. Yeah, already starting to to feel that pinch <laughs> a little bit as a first time yes. founder. So, yeah, yeah, uh, and you're, 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 yeah, the contracts thing, man, like it just bites you so hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, how about the the scaling side of things? Mm-hmm. Congregate obviously went through quite a lot of growth, but also quite a lot of change um, over the years. Are there you know any top lesson on scalability or adaptability from Congregate that you're thinking about carrying over to Double Loop? Yeah. Um. So one, you know, the thing that with Congregate is that we were. Um, you know, there was like a few months when it was just me and, you know, my brother and like one other person. And then very quickly we were between 10 and 20 people and we stayed at that size, like 17 people until GameStop bought us. And that was like four years at that one size. And then we grew very, very gradually, like one person, one person for a while after that. So we had this really extended people period where we were under 30 people. And we actually, you know, we had a lot of, um, I think a really good culture, really sort of open, uh, good discussions, all that kind, um, a lot of, uh, psychological safety, um, and we thought that it would just keep working like that when we got bigger. Um, but what happened is when we went into mobile and, you know, the web business had been growing really strongly and then we started mobile and we went from, I think, like 35 people to 70 people in about 18 months and everything broke. Um, everything in terms of like, uh, you know, communication and culture, like we started having like fighting and in fact, you know, in factions and kind of the web versus mobile team and things that I taken for granted that just worked when we were smaller stopped working. And the, the thing that I've kind of like image I now have in my mind is that like communication and culture, like you should think about it around table size that like, you know, if your team is small enough to sit around like one table and, ha- you know, like say six people, eight people and have one conversation, that's one culture. If you can all fit in like, you know, you know, you're 14 people and you can fit in one long restaurant table, but it's going to be different conversations on either side. That's a different culture. Then, you know, you need multiple long tables. Then you need a whole restaurant. Then you need double restaurant. Each of those places, like that's a different breaking point. And, you know, thinking about it in terms of like that sort of sort of spatial communication helps me envision when it's going to be um, when things are going to change and when things are going to be a problem and thinking about, okay, how do you push, how do you make things not dependent on me? Um, there was a lot of things at Congregate that it was just, you know, oh, I can just do, I can just do. But then when I needed to go off and, you know, sell, you know, sell the company or raise financing and disappeared, it was a choke point. Um, and trying to kind of get ahead of those this time and, and push down and make sure that everybody feels, sees the vision and is empowered to, um, you know, kind of carry it forward. Um, you know, we could feel the difference between, you know, 10 people working on the vertical slice and, you know, 20, 20 people working on soft launch now. Um, but it's still at a pretty easy point. I know at the point that you go to two teams, then 
things really, really change. Um, I would try to get ahead of it, but there are some things you just kind of have to uh, have like, there's always going to be some turmoil and turbulence. But I think the key thing is thinking about what vision, do people have a clear vision of what they're working on and are they empowered and feel the safety and trust to to, to work on it? And that's when you're going to have the most effective and happiest team. Interesting. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's um let's talk about the 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 future side of things. So how I'm curious, you know, if the way that you think about um, you know, the end game, the long-term goal of a company, how you think about exits um has changed in any way. Um, you know, in Congregate, you know, it got acquired by by GameStop and then again got sold um to MTG. Um, and, and I'm sure you've learned a lot from, from going through all of that. Um, but I'm curious, um, if there are any notable lessons from that time and how, how it's impacted the way that you're thinking about where double loop is eventually going in the future. Yeah. Um, selling the same company twice is like a p- weird, particular grind <laughs> achievement um, yeah. for an entrepreneur. Achievement unlocked, uh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, it takes this like a certain amount of longevity for that to work. So I think, um, you know, the the concrete experience in turn, it was really, really valuable, both for going through two different acquisitions, but then being on the inside and we also made acquisitions. So we bought, I think, four studios while um, um, I was there. So I've been now been on both sides of the transaction um, and that sort of really kind of opened my eyes to how the other party is thinking about it. Um, and, you know, it, it's thinking about it within the context of um, a public company. Um, so, you know, most acquirers tend to be public companies and they have, a, you know, their long-term vision and then, you know, uh, quarterly goals. And then um, that there's a lot of play between what, kind of multiple of earnings um, your uh, company is versus what multiple that public pump company is getting. So when, you know, deals are happening, you know, left, right uh, and center in the games industry, you know, uh, a year or two ago, it was partly because the public companies had, were getting really good multiples. And so it made it easier for them to buy, um, you know, other companies at attractive multiples. So that Understanding that dynamic um, um, uh, is important. Um, when some, when a company doesn't have earnings, then you're selling, right? Like when it's not yet profitable, then you're selling kind of the growth, the dream, the the integration. Um, you know, with game studios, it really should be on earnings. So um, a platform you can is much easier to sell on the potential and the dro- growth and the dream. And honestly, that's what we did at. At Congregate, we were break even when they bought us um, and became, you know, grew a lot um, under GameStop and, and became profitable. But we we grew into our about what 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 they paid for us, like after they bought us, um, which is actually something that I'm proud of. Right. That, you know, a lot of acquisitions is where, um, uh, you know, uh, companies go to die. And I think we. I think we increased our revenue something like 17 times, wow. 17x what they bought us for while we were, while we were there. Um, so, um, um, so that you know, and that actually is a, like a story of a good acquisition, right? That um, 
you know, they bought us. Um, and I, not only did I stay for through seven years at GameStop, almost all, m- most of the Corey team did. I think we had like seven of the first 10 um, um, congregate employees were still there when GameStop sold us. Um, and that was, you know, we, they knew that they didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> they didn't understand our market. And as long as we kept growing rapidly, they were like, cool, go ahead. So it still really felt like my company, our company executing the vision. Um, but what happened is, you know, we kept growing and they started shrinking and things started, you know, colliding a little bit in terms of, um, uh, of, you know, what we could invest and what we, we could do, which is when we started to, you know, mutually agree, okay, it's better for Congregate to get out of GameStop and started looking um, for, for, for MTG as a home. So, um, you know, as soon as you take investment, you are saying at some point I'm going to exit, right? Like, you know, this is the promise that you are making um, to somebody investing money in your company. The question is, is it going to be an acquisition or is it going to be an IPO? Um, you know, 98% of the time it's going to be an acquisition. Um, so building double loop, I'm thinking about, okay, what kind of company um, do they want to acquire what state do I want our company to be in to have the best possible exit and also land in an environment that is going to be sort of healthy for the studio and the choir long term? Like nothing necessarily lasts forever. Like, you know, GameStop, it was seven years, but it was a good, you know, six of those seven years were, 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 were good for both of us. And, um, and that's something that, um, you know, I would want again. So, you know, I'm thinking about is like what I want to build is a company with really sustained profitability, sustained, um, uh, profitability and like clear potential, for long-term growth, but also stability. Um, public companies love growth, but even more, they love consistent earnings um, mm-hmm. because that's what the market's like. So a game, and games are actually really like a long-term game with with really good retention and consistent monetization is actually a great fit with that. And, you know, I want to build... You know, double, the name Double Loop comes from, you know, um, wanting to build hobby games. So besides games, my other hobby is figure skating and loops are important in both of them. And then Double Loop <laughs> is uh, the infinity symbol. So for long term, so it's all this idea of building, you know, a long term game, things that people really want to play um, forever that our ho- hobbies are meaningful. So that's great for players, but it's also great for acquirers, right? Is that, you know, I mean, Candy Crush, my God, like, you know, they are the stability of Activision um, um, these days. And um, so, you know, part of, again, my confidence in like, I want to try again, I want to build was I could see a vision for a company that was what players want, what uh, you know, I as a developer want and was going to be a good business and a good um, um, potential for exit. Um, and then when I think about exit, you know, I, I think about I want to get into an environment where, you know, it still feels like my company, right, where all of my team 
still feels that ownership and brand and agency to keep um, uh, building games. And that's something I think actually the games industry has improved on uh, a lot in terms of acquisitions. Now, you know, you talk like, you know, Microsoft and Zynga and all these other, uh, Tencent, all these other acquirers now brag about, you know, leaving studios alone and letting them, them um, uh, you know, kind of build their vision. And they recognize that that is a better environment. So I'm optimistic that, you know, hopefully we have a great success. And when the time comes, we'll have a choice of, you know, uh, of, of good homes for the um, for the studio. Cool. I'm just kicking myself. I read on your profile um, on the website that you like figure skating. I'm just kicking myself that I didn't piece the whole double loop thing together. Um, I, yeah, I meant it to be like this kind of uh, Easter egg. So all yeah. of my figure skating friends immediately are like, oh, that's a figure skating reference. But like to, you know, games industry broader, um, uh, you know, nobody, nobody gets it. And I like that. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, in our, our final five or six minutes or so, I, I want to try hitting on a couple culture questions here. I think it's really important. And um, part of why I wanted to talk to you is because I've, you know, even from a distance, I've admired your ability to not just preach platitudes about culture, but you genuinely have a very deep, nuanced and methodical way of thinking about, you know, policies and the way culture should be run. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe to start we can try to, to hit on this maybe a little bit faster as we as we close up, but um, maybe can start with Double Loops Culture, uh, which on your website it says, to make games with longevity, you need teams that are sustainable. We're building an environment that's transparent, respectful, and family-friendly. Um, you mentioned uh, previously in the conversation about how when you were building Congregate, how you had some regrets on how that culture was being built and how you felt uncomfortable sometimes. Are there maybe like two or three tidbits that are different this time that you want to call out as being unique and maybe replicable that others can can learn from that you're implementing today? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a little hard to compare because, you know, we're starting, like, we started Double Loop and the pandemic hit six six months later. Yeah. So we only had, you know, there were only four of us when the pandemic started. So we've had to kind of build our company and comp company culture as, you know, a remote, more Zoom first studio. So sometimes it's a little hard to separate, like, what what's different because we've had to build this way ver versus not. I think that, you know, the key thing um, that I think is most impor important to building good cultures um, is something called psychological safety. And this is something like, uh, you know, I'd kind of felt, um, but didn't have a word for. And then um, a bunch of research came out of Google that talked about it. Um, and I think psycholo psychological safety is that kind of sense that you can, you know, come into work, be your true self, you know, voice disagreements and, you know, feel safe um, disagreeing with people um, and having uh, and having this is rambly not I should have looked up the exact definition but um, anyway there's look of psychological safety but I mean I think the key thing is that when there's psychological safety there's trust and I feel like trust is this magical ingredient that makes the world work and makes the world work better um, and so when 
I'm, you know, starting double loop. And I think this is something that, you know, honestly was in, even though we made mistakes at various points, was it was a key part of um, Congregate as well is the sense of, I want to trust you and I need to be trustworthy um, for you to trust me. And so that means, you know, looking at everybody as individuals, um, really hearing them and listening them, to them, assuming kind of best intentions, but also aware that like, uh, you know, some people aren't going to have those and dealing with that quickly. And, but just, you know, modeling it as much as possible. Um, people want to trust, people want to be trusted. So if you model it and, 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 um, begin with that in your culture, it, it tends to replicate because it is so much easier um, when you don't have to like micromanage or double check or be politicking in your mind. If you can just do something and say something and trust that the other people around you are going to do their jobs and, and handle it. So to me, that ultimately is the, 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 the key um, to create culture. Um, I think the other thing about double loop that is a hard thing is that, um, you know, or I actually not a hard thing. Um, you know, you're talking about how you read all these things on our website. We are signaling what we're looking for and what we're expecting of employees very, very hard on our website and saying, this is who we are. This is what we want and this is what we want you to be. So that sets the that both filters um, who applies, who's interested um, to people who want that kind of culture. And it also signals from the very you know beginning moment, the very first conversation you have with us, um, what the 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 expectations of company and culture are. So I think that thinking about um, culture and starting um, with your website, um, but then making sure that every part of the process from interviewing to onboarding to, you know, first weeks that you're, you know, making people feel safe and showing that, that then that is sort of the best start that you can, 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 can have to, to a great culture. Awesome. Um, we're right at time. Do you mind if I ask you one last question? Yep. Awesome. So um, I know that your story is an inspiration to many people, including me, and I could go you know, on for another three hours just, just learning from all that you've learned um, as an entrepreneur, but, but also just as a, a prominent woman founder and CEO in the games industry. I know um, it's especially inspirational for other women who are starting games companies in a still pretty male dominant industry. And so I'm curious to, to know how you view the industry's progress um, toward better supporting inclusivity, um, um, you know, gender first and foremost, but also otherwise. Um, and then tactically, what should we do as an industry to accelerate better supporting and 10xing the, the number of the next Emily Greers out there? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, the, um, I actually think that there's been a really substantial progress in my time in the game and in games industry. On the one hand, yes, it's still really male dominated. But when I got here, I don't know what the exact numbers were, but it felt like, you know, we were like 
10 to 12%. And now I think we're something like, you know, 25%. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, still really male dominated. But I can say like, as a woman, <laughs> um, being one of 10 or one of four feels really, really different. And if you're in a room with 20 people and it's 25% women, there, you know, you got a little, little, little cohort. Um, and it doesn't feel, it, it does not, it feels way, way better than it did when you were really literally the only woman in the room. Um, so yeah, um, we've, I feel like we have passed a threshold that is meaningful, um, um, in terms of, of that still, especially other kinds of inclusivity, a long way to go, but, I feel I, I can feel it personally, um, you know, in terms of what um, we can do. I actually think that kind of building good cultures, <laughs> building sustainable cultures is for everybody um, benefits the companies and it benefits uh, inclusivity um, overall. And that you if you if we just think about it as a inclusivity problem, we're not really getting to the heart of it. We need to think of it as a studio culture problem. Um, and that when a studio culture is toxic, that the people who will um, be affected by it the most and driven out by it the most are going to be, you know, the non-dominant culture. But it's also driving out a lot of other people too. Um, and that the more that we think about, okay, uh, you know, we're hiring women and they're quitting. Well, you're, that's, that's not about, about gender as much as it is, as it is about, um, everything else that's happening. And, um, so if you, you know, uh, focus on kind of the root things that make, companies sort of toxic and unsustainable and crunch and all of these like associated behaviors go together, that if you fix those, you will not instantly fix inclusivity, but you will make, you will set the conditions where that um, inclusivity becomes much, much more natural and you can really um, build. And, you know, uh, we talk about retention all the time in games. Retention uh, versus acquisition. Sure, there's a funnel problem, but fix your retention first, and then you will build up um, uh, that culture. I think one thing, another thing that's really different that I see now is how, you know, the women who have uh, sort of survived the gauntlet and are now, you know, executives and leading studios and starting studios. I, there's a bunch of women who have started studios in the last um, five years. I am uh, privileged to be friends with lots of them. And it is, um, you know, something where we support each other and then we're modeling it for the next generation. So, you know, you retain people, they become senior. If you see senior people, you're more comfortable entering it. And I think to me, those things are what will gradually change it. Um, both Congregate and Double Loop have ended up in it where we have way higher normal, um, you know, uh, uh, women, um, female representation um, than standard for the game industry, but also much higher, you know, Latino, uh, Latina um, representation. And, 
you know, I was a woman who was born in Guatemala. Um, I am not, I'm, I'm not Latina, but like, um, I had a lot of, spent a lot of time in Latin America when I was younger. I haven't done anything deliberately, but it seems like non-coincidental that those two things that are part of my background have ended up being overrepresented. Um, and, um, but at the same time, we've struggled um, with um, with black representation in both companies. So anyway, I think long-winded, but retain people and allow them to grow into leadership positions. And that fixes a lot of things. Great. Well, thanks for sharing all of that, Emily. Um, and also just thanks for, for joining me today. This has been a really fun, yeah. enlightening conversation. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the final, final question is for, for those who want to follow along and learn more about um, either you or Double Loop Games, where should they go? Yeah. Um, so for me, um, I'm probably most ac active on Twitter where I have the handle Emily G. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty early on Twitter. Uh, and uh, then for Double Loop, um, we've got, I think we've got a Twitter, but uh, I think we're a little more active on Instagram. Um, and then we have a, our LinkedIn page um, and website, um, uh, doubleloopgames.com are, 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 are the place to go. Very cool. Well, Emily, thank you again so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation and I look forward to seeing Double Loop crush it in the years to come. Thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And to all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to give us a like, subscribe, five stars. It'd mean a lot. Uh, we'll put the links to all things Emily and Double Loop in the episode description below. And of course, if you want to check out all things Novik, uh, we'll put some links down there as well. And thanks again for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time.